This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. I want to welcome you to this episode of Gesher. Today is Yom HaShoah, or Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's a time when the Jewish community and the whole world stops to remember the victims, survivors, and heroes of the Holocaust, or the Shoah. You know, when I was growing up, the Holocaust seemed like a distant event of the past. Being a Gentile, I didn't have any family members who went through the Holocaust. I didn't have any connection to it. It was a true event, certainly, but it was something that was shrouded in the mist of time. But that all changed the day I met Martin Ackerman. In 2014, I was serving with a volunteer program in Las Vegas, Nevada, and it was there that I was introduced to Martin, a Hungarian survivor of the Holocaust. At first, our relationship was simply that of a young volunteer who helped an elderly man get to his doctor's appointments or go to the grocery store. But it didn't take long for that relationship to develop into a close, family-like friendship. In fact, years later, when my wife and I had children, Martin, who had no children of his own, became Zadie, Yiddish for grandpa. To my kids. Knowing Martin not only as a Holocaust survivor, but as a man, as a friend, it made the horrors of the Holocaust far more personally outrageous and grievous to me. No longer was the Holocaust something that happened to European Jewry in general, something that left six million unnamed Jewish people dead. It was an act of unspeakable hatred and evil aimed at people like my friend. And so over the years, Martin shared his story with me, but he did so in pieces. We sat down one day to write out his story, and it was fairly complete. But as memories came back to him in poignant fragments over time, the painful picture became clearer and far more devastating. In 2019, while I was a journalism student at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, one of my assignments was to produce an audio story about an incident from someone's life, and it didn't take me long to determine who my subject would be. Despite a memory that was not quite as sharp as it had been, Martin agreed to be interviewed about his experience. And so what you're about to hear is that story, told to me more than three years ago. Now I'll warn you, the quality is pretty low. Not only was my recording equipment primitive at the time, the Jewish deli where we recorded proved to be unusually noisy that day. And so you'll hear the oldie station playing over the loudspeaker quite uh, loudly at certain points. But the other issue was that Martin's memory was fading at the same time. And so he reads portions of the survival testimony that he had written years earlier to make sure he stayed on track. And undoubtedly, you'll be able to uh, tell when he's reading from the paper. Despite these shortcomings, though, I hope you will listen intently to my friend's story. I hope you will hear the pain and the melancholy in his voice even some 80 years after the events of the Holocaust. And I hope that you will make it a point to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive so that we and our children will not forget what happened when the Nazi regime dared to touch the people God calls the apple of his eye. Please listen. Martin is a slight, frail man with piercing baby blue eyes. Around his neck hangs a golden Torah scroll necklace that frequently gets tangled in the lanyard of his life alert pendant. He smiles as he talks and sips from his glass of Sprite while we sit in a nearby cafe but a look of concern spreads across his face as he talks about a recent visit to the DMV. For Martin, going to the DMV has always been a necessary evil, but not a particularly irksome one. Everything changed for him, though, in September of 2020. In March of that year, 
Martin received a notice from the DMV stating that it was time to renew his license. Given his age, his ID says he was born in 1929, but we'll get to that later, he was required to renew in person. No big deal. He's done it many times before, probably dozens of times. But this time was different. This time he was going to the DMV with the intention of surrendering his license and getting a state ID card instead. Well, by then I was 92 and I didn't feel secure on the road and I figured I should give it up. It was natural, you know, you get to an age when you're ready to drive and you have to give it up. But that didn't happen. He arrived at the DMV for his appointment and handed the official his paperwork. The woman looked over the papers, then got up to speak with her manager. But she came back with some bad news. My heart dropped. <laughs> I mean, you know, for years and years I had no trouble getting it. And now all of a sudden, and they refused to give it to me because I didn't have the necessary papers to show that I was here legally. Martin's trouble at the DMV, his inability to give them the paperwork they requested to prove legal residency in the United States, actually began years before, many years before, to just a few years after the end of World War I. After the war, the, 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 the first war, many people in Europe tried to emigrate either to the United States, France. My, my parents decided to, to emigrate to Mexico. My father was working in a textile firm and they asked him to go to Mexico to establish a, a part of the company there. That's what they, they went. So my father went first and then a year later, he brought my mother over there. That's how I was born. I was born in Mexico City, 1928. This is where the story gets interesting, because Martin can't actually prove that he was born in 1928. All of his legal documents, in fact, say that he was born in 1929. But it's also interesting for another reason. Martin Ackerman? That's not really his name. His real name is... Shulman. Yep, Martin Ackerman, born in 1929, is actually Shalomon Ackerman, born in 1928. And this is much more than a story about a mixed-up birth certificate, or even a visit to the DMV gone wrong. It's a story about longing and about identity. My mother decided to, to go back to Hungary because they, they had some difficulty with the, her parents. And, when my brother and I, there was only my brother and my and myself because well, my sister, Piroshka, she was born in Hungary. Shalomin's mother and father had some type of relationship difficulties at the time, too. So his mother took her two little boys and her unborn daughter on a ship to Hungary. She was going to start a new life with new opportunities. My grandmother and my grandfather were... Orthodox Jews, very religious. And as I grew up in Hungary, they put me in a Jewish school. And in the morning we had classes 
arriving, visiting another day. We, in the evening, we had religious concerts, study the Torah, and all day. Although they were poor, Charlemagne's family loved each other, and he had a good childhood. It was pretty good. I don't remember anything until I finally had to go to school. By then it was 38, 39, I don't know. And they started these programs against the Jews. Then I had a bad time because the Jewish school had a uniform stating that they were Jews. And then the other kids that lived around us tried to abuse us. When we got at the school, some of them were waiting for us. And I don't know, I, I was different. I was very small and I couldn't find them. So I just let them throw me against this soul. Well, it doesn't exist now. Maybe they do. It was made out the store by that um, with metal curtains. And that's where they throw me. And they started to bang on the curtain. They called me Juden, Jido. That's a Hungarian means Jew. While he didn't know it at the time, Shalaman and nine and a half million other European Jews had just entered what historians would later call the Holocaust. We were restricted from going to school. I think I had to quit the school in the eighth grade. It was the time that the army caused party of our light Hungarian group started to deport the older Jews. They went them to work camps and some of them to concentration camps. But my family, we are okay for another year. We had to wear yellow stars. We were restricted at that time. That would go out on when we couldn't. In '44, they started without the Hungarian Jews. One day they announced that everybody was to leave the house. They took us into a big place. I think it was a horse-wrecking track. They got all the Jews from Budapest at least all that they could catch because some of them were hiding. Once we were all collected, they separated us. My brother and I went to one side and the other part of my family went to the other side. This was the first time I was away from my mother and my family. Separated from their mother, sister, and the rest of their extended family, Shalman and his brother Jean were herded along with other Jewish males to a brick factory in Buda on the west side of the Danube River. They worked there doing hard labor. In 44, they started with us, the Hungarian Jews. One day they announced. Separated from their mother, sister, and the rest of their extended family, Shalman and his brother Jean were herded along with other Jewish males to a brick factory in Buda 
on the west side of the Danube River. They worked there doing hard labor. Although Martin's identity as a Jew ensured his persecution, it was his identity as a Mexican citizen that helped to free him from almost certain death. The end of the war was near, so they got all the people from the factory and they tried to, to take us uh, to a concentration camp. I don't know which one, but they had to walk and we walked and walked. One day a Nazi came to on a motorcycle and said, anybody has fallen born, step out. It was automatic. I didn't come out it, but thinking maybe we should have to be more careful before doing that. But if they wanted to kill us before, they took us back to the ghetto. The rest of the people, I don't know where they wound up, maybe a concentration camp over But me and my brother and the whole group, maybe 10 people, were able to go back to the ghetto. This was near the end of the war. Many Hungarian Jews in the death marches were taken to concentration camps or shot on the march. Had Solomon and his brother not been foreign-born, they likely would have suffered a similar fate. Back in the ghetto, hungry but alive, Solomon and his brother were put to work again, doing dangerous, grueling things. But not long after their arrival, a fellow prisoner came up with an idea. In the ghetto there was smart kid. He he told us, clean up, try to shine sho- your shoes. None of, none of us had beards at that time. So we were pretty clean. We washed our faces and all that. He said, I know of a time when we can get out of the ghetto and go to safe houses. That day, my brother, this guy, and I, Walk straight like we knew we were doing. We got straight out of the ghetto. The guy spoke German to Al Hitler. He asked everything okay. I was somebody in authority. I'm going to let us out. Shalman, Jean, and their new friend escaped to a safe house where they miraculously were reunited with the Ackerman family. The family stayed there until the Russians took over at the end of the war. With the brutal Russians in charge and no food, Shalman and his brother crossed the border illegally into Romania. They were stopped by the police, and they were put in prison there for six months. Somehow or another, or much teacher from grade school, he learned that we were there, and somehow he got us out. We broke back to Budapest. I don't know how many miles it was, but we broke without food. After I came back from Romania, this friend of mine who took me out of the ghetto came by and said he's going to Czechoslovakia and then to Germany and then to France if I wanted to go. I asked my mother, and my mother gave me a shirt and underwear and said, Fairly strip, go make your life. Don't forget us. Then we went on a military 
train, a Russian military train from Budapest and we get to Czechoslovakia first. I think we tried to get to the Swiss consulate, but I don't think they had it. They said, I have to go to France because there was no, no, the office was closed. No, they, they don't have relation with Mexico. I don't know what was the problem, but but the thing was that as I go back, they couldn't help me at all. So then, from Czechoslovakia, I don't remember now what transportation we, we take to go to Germany. But we finally get there, and the US military stopped us and took us to the United Nations Refugee Association. At this point, Shalomon is about 16 years old. He survived the Holocaust and left his family to escape Europe. Once in Germany, he is taken to a camp for refugees run by the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, or UNRWA for short. You might be thinking, okay, incredible story, but what does any of this have to do with the Las Vegas DMV? Patience, we'll get to that. But what's coming next is very important to the story, a link that we cannot afford to miss. Shalomon stayed by himself in the UNRWA camp for two years. While there, he received some unpleasant news. Well, while I was in the camp, they contacted me through the Jewish Federation, and they told me that my brother and this guy got it permission to go to United States. Michael Bloom, that was his name. I maybe see him twice in my life. Before they were, we went to the same temple. They were rich people, so we didn't socialize too much. Shalomon's mother wanted her family to leave Hungary for the United States. So did Michael Bloom's parents. With one of her sons on his own in Germany, Shalomon's mother sold his identity papers to the wealthy Bloom family so that their son could immigrate to the U.S. with Jean in Shalomon's place. Although it was an understandable decision for a poor, single mother in an unstable country, it wounded Shalomon deeply, and it still does. How do I feel when I cry? It's a bad feeling, you know. But, but. They, they didn't really left me, I left them, you know, because I wanted to get out of Europe. So it's confusing a little bit now, after so many years, you know. But I, I was the first one of the family who left the family place. Sometimes I... I I don't know, I don't blame myself. There was just things that you you had to get out. It was dangerous, it was nothing to look up to. Mm-hmm. It was just uh, sad. I, sometimes I blame myself for leaving them. I had to get out. This is where Shalomon's DMV visit comes into play. 
After finding out that his brother and Michael Bloom were on their way to the United States, he made his way to France. There, he made contact with the Mexican consulate and was given a Mexican passport, something he had never had before. When he made it to Mexico, he was reunited with his father, who he had not seen since the early 1930s. This was 1948. It wasn't the meaning like I expected it, you know. Uh, you don't see your father for so many years, you know. It was a little bit awkward, you know, but I wanted to hug him and kiss him, but he wouldn't go for that, you know. He just received me. Hola, como estas? That's it. It's difficult for Shalomon to recall what exactly took place at that meeting all those years ago. He remembers, though, that his brother had suggested that he change his name, since Michael Bloom was using the identity of Shalomon Ackerman in America. Shalomon's father helped to arrange the name change. He got to get to the, the, the witnesses, people who know me before, when I was a baby in Mexico, came. He talked to them and told them what I needed. Shalomon decided to call himself by his brother-in-law's first name, Martin Ackerman. A few years went by. Shalomon, now Martin, wanted to get out of Mexico. In Mexico, I couldn't do anything. There was no future. His plan was to emigrate from Mexico to the United States. By this time, all of his family was already there. I had to go to the American embassy in Mexico City to request a permit to come to the United States. So I'm applying for a permanent residency. And they told me that I have to go through the military. And they gave me a bunch of papers that I had to fill up. I sent all those papers to New York because I needed an affidavit to know that I won't be uh, trouble in the United States. Before that, naturally, I had to go to the service. It was a requisite. So I went to the service for two years. I served my two years, and then I went to the embassy. And by then, I had the papers back from New York. I had a bunch of papers and my military discharge. And, and then I think it was worth for the embassy to look at me, blue eyes white, that I was born in Mexico. So they asked me, how else can you prove it? I said, well, I can go to Veracruz and where my mother and father got married. I realized for another month, I went to Veracruz and I got the papers. Then I took it to the embassy. And then the guy looked at, it, looked at me, looked at the paper, and said, come back tomorrow. I'll get your clean card. So that's what happened. I went back. And I got the cream corn. Now I was free to go to the United States. And that's what he did. In April 1958, Shalman left Mexico, taking a bus to New York, where he was reunited with his family. Although his past was anything but normal, his life in America was exactly that. 
He eventually moved to California, where he worked for a printing company, until his retirement in 2000. He married his wife Gloria, and enjoyed his extended family and friends. When he received notices that required him to renew his green card registration, his wife assured him that he did not need to complete them since he married an American citizen, something he doubts is the truth today, especially in light of his experience at the DMV. But there was another fear, a deeper fear, that has always lurked in the back of Shalom's mind. I was fearful that they will find out that my real name wasn't Martin, it was Shalomon. Well, I'm one bird. I don't feel like I'm one person. You know, I just, I don't know how to explain that, but it's, it, it will never be free until I can change my name. So do you ever think about changing your name legally to Solomon? I can't. I'm the friend. I didn't want to get anything to do with the FBI. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my thought was always, if they find out that I'm not kosher, then they're going to kick me out. And so, you know, I forgive everybody. I just want to finish my life free, and which never will happen because I'm not free. Well, but maybe I... Maybe I have to die to be free. I don't know. I already have my burning place here in the United States. So he just dropped me in and then everything is finished. But Shalman says he'll have the last word because his name on his gravestone reads Shlomo Ben Moshe Ekron. Why did you put that on there? Because I wanted to put my real name so they know who I really am. Do you find it kind of ironic that your identity will only be made known after you die? Yeah, it does. But at least I'll be here as Solomon. It makes me feel kind of good. Martin passed away on February 3rd, 2022. And I miss him in a way I cannot express. So today, as we commemorate Yom HaShoah, I think of him, and I am grateful to God for crossing our paths and for allowing me to know the singular man. May we never forget. I'm Ty Perry. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Thai, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.